in a stadium rich with tradition. We have that here, and it reeks. And when you come in, teams take the field, they can feel it. The lights shine the brightest. Definitely playing at Camp Brandon is one of the best places to play in college football. This is the Camp. Now, here's your host, Zach Heilprin, and the Athletics' Jesse Temple on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Network. Yes, welcome in to the camp here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. I'm Zach Heilprin. He's Jesse Temple. All right, Jesse, I'm just going to sit here and say you're awesome. You're fantastic. You're great. You said they'd go 4-0 in November. You were correct, and they won the Big Ten West. They beat Minnesota, and they're on to the Big Ten Championship game. This is your opportunity to gloat following that 38-17 to beatdown of Minnesota. I'm only going to gloat minimally. Uh, I'll take the fact that you open the show by acknowledging your failures. That That's good enough for me. I'm just wondering when I said I, when did I pick Minnesota? Always. I never picked Minnesota. Find it, find if, it in a show where I picked, actually, actually picked Minnesota. My own mouth saying I picked Minnesota. All I said Zach, was, all I said was Wisconsin. I was not confident Wisconsin could go up there and win. You, you sir, were confident. are a master of editing. I uh-uh, guarantee I, it may not have been on the air, but I guarantee. I never said it. Okay. Never said it. You well, implied it at the end of last week's show. That was in the show. I'm you sitting next to you it, in sir. the studio watching your facial reactions enough to know which direction you were leaning. Oh, so now you're going to imply what my face says? That's that's a dangerous thing, Mr. Body Language Guy. Infer. Am I? I can't. What did you say? What did I say? Imply? Whatever. I don't know. Either way. Look. Yes, you were right. I was not confident Wisconsin could go up there and win. I thought Minnesota would play better. I thought Minnesota would have a better opportunity in the passing game. They didn't. Wisconsin's defense stepped up and played better than they had in, what, quite some time? And Jack Cohn played at a, at a very high level, 280 yards, the most passing yards in a Big Ten game for Wisconsin since 2015, which I think is, their, uh, you know, when Joel had those, I think he had three 300-yard games that year because they could not run the ball at all. That was a complete team effort. Even the special teams get on it with uh, Isaac Rendo's reverse. It was an impressive performance to take back the axe. If you look at the totality of the season, I think I, I always in the back of my head I thought that team that started six and zero is still there somehow. They're not the defense that's going to shut everybody out. But the loss to Illinois and the loss to Ohio State in my mind are separate because Ohio State is the best team in college football probably. Them and LSU, LSU is the only yeah. one that can make that claim I think right now. Yeah. And the Illinois was just a total collapse in the last eight minutes in in a game that otherwise Wisconsin should have won and did all the things that they needed to do until that point. So I think that's part of why I thought Wisconsin would be able to do what they did in November. And the other thing was the fact that this decade, for the most part, they've dominated those teams. And Iowa's been a good matchup, but Wisconsin has beaten Iowa all but one time this decade. And so those were some things that that I were thinking. And with Minnesota, it was always, are they really as good as people think? The Penn State game, I think, changed opinions. But then they went and lost to Iowa. And so... I think that was part of part. But of everyone goes and loses in Iowa, right? Like everyone. I mean, we've seen Ohio State do it. We've seen Michigan do it. We've seen Penn State do it. Like I was always good at home. Again, I just thought based on what we had seen the previous couple of weeks, especially in the secondary where Wisconsin secondary had had really struggled, that Tanner Morgan would have a field day. And while he did throw for what two ninety six, a lot of that was take away that first. Uh, obviously, the first play. The first passing play down the field for the touchdown had a nice uh, scramble away and, and found Bateman for, I think, 27 yards than that. 
those are the two plat the two down the field pass plays that stand out, and they were both with they were both on the first two drives of the game. Otherwise, I thought Caesar Williams, I thought Samar Melvin after his you know that first play, Bayon Hicks shadowing Rashad Bateman, who he ended up with 147 yards, but that big play was essentially those two plays were essentially the only ones he looked and said, "Gosh, that's a that's a heck of a playmaker," and he's he's unstoppable and all that stuff. Like he they did away with him. Tyler Johnson had the quietest what. 90 some odd yards receiving like I didn't even notice him on the field uh until late when he had the touchdown so and they got after Tanner Morgan they had five sacks and they hit him a whole bunch more times so they did a lot of things I didn't think they were honestly up to be doing after what we had seen the last few weeks so I don't know I should, that was why I kind of felt a lack of confidence going into that game no I totally understand I think that we would all acknowledge that was the biggest question going into this game is Wisconsin's defense has given up a ton of big plays to Nebraska, obviously to Ohio State. Purdue hit several in, in not just those trick plays. And then you're facing the best wide receiver duo that you've seen, two guys that have 1,000-plus yards and a quarterback who's been very good this year. What's going to happen? And the second play happens, and you're like, oh, my God, Minnesota's going to roll. And obviously Wisconsin was able to figure some things out. You You look at, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, the guys in the secondary were tremendous. Caesar Williams played the game of his life. He came into the game with six pass breakups all season. He had four in the game and an interception. Eric Burrell had a career-high three pass breakups. He had eight tackles. Reggie Pearson had seven tackles. And you're asking Samar Melvin, a freshman who had played in two games before, to play extensive action because Rashad Wildgoose didn't make the trip with a left leg injury. And as you said earlier, I thought after that first play, Samar did a really good job when a lot of young guys, I think, would have been swallowed up by the moment. He had a pass breakup. It was a third and 15 down the field, and it, I thought it was a really good play because if Minnesota had converted, they might have gotten some points. I think it was 10-7 at the time at the end of the, the first half. So, yeah. yeah, it was. I think all in all, given what was at stake, this was the best all-around performance that Wisconsin had. Yeah, no, it definitely was. There were several key moments in that game and I kind of wanted to get into those, and a couple of them are on Minnesota side. Specifically, second uh, the second drive where it's fourth and two at Wisconsin's 34-yard line, and P.J. punted it. You were stunned. I, I remain stunned because he's, he, well, officially, officially, he is now a Big Ten coach, punting at his opponent's 34-yard line. Now, I was listening to KFAN on the way home a little bit, and apparently... People that have covered PJ, not just at Minnesota, but at Western Michigan, were not surprised. He's not as, uh, I guess, aggressive as uh, you would expect him to be, considering his boisterous and aggressive personality, at least uh, off the field and you know, at least visually on the field. But for not, not going for it there and punting was a bit of a surprise. And I thought that gave Wisconsin, uh, no, Wisconsin had to punt again, but it, it gave them a little bit of life. And then there was uh, another situation where they it was third and ten, and this was um, when it was Wisconsin. Wisconsin was up seventeen to seven. It was after the uh, Quintez Cephas touchdown. They marched right back down the field, and it's third and ten, and you're expecting a pass, right? Because it's you know the conditions aren't great to kick a field goal, and you and they ran it to the left side on like a for nothing for right? nothing. Yeah, and th- those are those were two decisions I think by PJ and his staff that were questionable in my mind. Now, as for Wisconsin, the, the key plays pretty obvious. The Caesar Williams interception after the Crookshank fumble, right? So he Crookshank fumbles on, in, on that's the last time we saw him on offense. He fumbles on the Wildcat. 
sees William, you know, Jack Sanborn gets the tip, pick, sees Williams. They only get a field goal out of that, but it was big. And then coming out uh, in the second half, and instead of, you know, being backed up on your first drive inside the 10, and instead of just handing it, turn around and handing it to Jonathan Taylor, it was throw down the side to, to Quintez Cephas. Two plays later, Quintez Cephas runs right by the linebacker for the touchdown. Those two plays, those, those two guys, in my mind, were the players of the game offensively for Wisconsin. I thought Jack Cohn was absolutely phenomenal, and there were there were two drives. If you don't count the one at the end of the first half where they obviously didn't finish out the drive, they just went into the locker room. They scored a touchdown where he went five for six um, through the air, and they only ran one play on the ground. It was six-yard carry to Jonathan Taylor. And then, as you mentioned, that drive with the two passes to Quintez Cephas with the snow and the wind and the conditions – especially the touchdown pass, that he he just put it on Quintez absolutely perfect. I think that shows why people have so much confidence in Jack around this program. Correct. And I think there's a lot of people wondering, why in the heck do they ever line the fullback up outside? Like, why in the world do you ever motion him out there and put him out there? Do you, you know why? a pass. Right, 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 right. But do you know, on that one, on the yeah, one that's there, Saki. but on the Cephas touchdown, they motioned him out there and it forced the corner to move out it forced the safety over a little bit, and it forced the linebacker to try and carry Quintez down the middle of the field, and it could not do it. And so that is kind of why you sometimes see a, a fullback, why the Wisconsin did it in that situation. It got them the exact matchup they wanted, and that was Quintez Cephas on Thomas Barber, and it was not a match. He just threw it right down the middle, and it was a perfect pass from Jack and a perfect catch uh, for Quintez. And you know, he had to have been obviously very excited to play in this game because he had not gotten to play in it the last two years. He didn't get to play in 2017 because of the injury, and then last year, obviously, uh, with his suspension, he was huge. Five for 114. He was fantastic. I mentioned the Isaac Garendo, uh kick. That was another momentum-changing play, right? I mean, it's 17-10. It, it, it set him up at the 39-yard line, and a couple plays later, they wind up getting a touchdown. That was the drive when Kendrick Pryor had the— Kendrick Pryor play. Yes. The, <laughs> I, know you, I know you asked him about that, the, the end around, which— was the second one that he had because before that Aaron Crookshake fumble, they went for it on fourth and three. Riverboat gambler Paul Chris goes for it, and they get the six-yard gain from Kendrick Pryor. So. Yeah, but that is the Kendrick Pryor play. I mean, you go back to the Iowa game in 2017, he scored on it. He scored on it in the Michigan game that year. He scored on it last year against Michigan. And he, he joked in that, I can call it the Kendrick Pryor play, but he won't. You can say that. <laughs> I didn't say it, but you, you can say that if you want to. But yeah, it's just, um, it is kind of true, though. Not to sound cocky, but it is like the times we run it almost more than half. I'm, I score on them, so you could you could say that because it is. They've run it like he scored on half of the times they've run it. He scored, so um, that was huge. And then the Caesar Williams, it's 24-10 heading into the fourth quarter. Minnesota has the ball inside the Badgers five. They got two plays. They go fade. Caesar Williams breaks it up. They go you know a little out, and Caesar Williams closes on it, breaks it up. You talked about how good he was, but those two plays I thought were his Mona Lisa's, I guess. And he said after the game, I thought this was interesting, he mentioned that he looked over to Minnesota's sideline and he said he saw P.J. Fleck crouching and P.J. was staring at him in that general direction. And what what Caesar said was his number one guy. And Caesar said, I gave him a nod, like, (laughs) let's go get it. And so he said that he knew those plays were coming, or at least they were coming in his direction, and obviously he mean-mugged it after he, he got the stop on fourth down, and 
Fortunately for Wisconsin, didn't get a penalty yeah, because the, the officials was, like officials like no, that was borderline. No, 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 no. But it was it was absolutely huge to get those back to back because as you said, if Minnesota scores, it's twenty four seventeen. They're down a touchdown with basically the entire fourth quarter, and instead, Wisconsin's got the ball and rolls to a win. He was just Caesar was just fantastic. He was, and the win was not necessarily guaranteed. It's twenty four ten, right? Third and long places still. You know, there's some people not feeling good about it in the stands, but they're still loud. It's third and long. Well, third and seven, and they call just the absolutely perfect play. The screen to Garrett Groshek, nobody out there. Except five dudes that were blocking for him. Well, and that's that's the thing. When you get into third and long, and I guarantee, like we always talk about Wisconsin getting schemed up with the scheme beaters that have, you know, we've talked about with Eric Burrell and the defense. Wisconsin schemed that up because they had, on that third and, it was third and seven, they only had one defensive lineman on the field. So what are you expecting when they have five linebackers on the field? You're expecting them to come hard after your guys, and they came, and they just beat the heck out of it. And it was a perfect call at the perfect time. They did it a couple times, not the screen to Groshek, but they also had the tight end screen, the long-lost tight end screen from Paul Chris' offense that it feels like hadn't been run in quite some time. I think they may have run it against Miami in the bowl game last year, but there were just a, a few calls here and there that just screamed Paul Chris from 2011. Paul Chris from 2010, Paul Chris, the offensive coordinator, as opposed to Paul Chris, the head coach, which has, uh, I'm not going to say maligned by any stretch, but just hasn't had the feel. As you're, as you're calling a game, so much of it is getting into the rhythm, right? And he had them on their heels the entire game, especially, what, second quarter on? They had an answer for pretty much everything Minnesota threw at them. They schemed them up. Vintage Plus, Paul Chris, you might say. Yeah. And it's funny because the very, the very first drive, they go, Jonathan Taylor run, Taylor run, Taylor run. He's a yard short. They punt, and I'm just thinking, oh, punt, God, punt, punt. is this what it's going to look like today? But really, this was the second straight game where I thought they really opened up the offense. We talked after the Purdue game about it because eight of the plays they ran were out of the Wildcat. Four went to Groshek, four went to Crookshank. Two of those plays wound up with touchdowns. And today it wasn't so much – or excuse me, on after the game on Saturday, it wasn't so much the Wildcat because the one play they ran out of it ended in a fumble. But you've got Kendrick on the end of rounds. As you said, you've got the screen play – just the passes that they dialed up at the right time that Jack was able to hit, I thought it was tr- just tremendous all the way around what they were able to do. Yeah, and just going back to, to Stevens, I thought it was good to get him uh, going early and getting him the ball early because it kind of keeps him in the game. And I don't think I don't necessarily think he's ever not into it, but there are times like when you get him the ball and people feed off his energy probably more so than any other player on offense. Maybe uh, not the entire team, but certainly on offense – um, when he gets going, feels like everybody else gets going too. Paul said after the game that he saw Quintez had kind of a look about him, like this was a really important, meaningful game to him, and it was for everybody. But that was funny that after the game, Quintez mentioned that Michael Dieter apparently had been texting him about how he couldn't sleep because uh, they lost the axe. And I asked Quintez afterward, "Were you talking about he couldn't sleep that night?" And he was like, "No, the whole year." <laughs> so I think some of the former players obviously relayed how much it sucked to lose the axe and you could tell how much it meant i'm sure we'll talk about this more too but i noticed those guys didn't want to leave the field after the game like they were trying to find any way to stay on there passing the axe around to fans and just kind of soaking in the scene because that was pretty special let's get into the axe uh because i think that deserves a segment in its own just based on how it played out and you because there was there's a lot of things at play here because you go all the way back to last year and the way that Minnesota celebrated with the axe. I don't I didn't actually necessarily see anything bad on the field. You know, like they were celebrating with the axe, right? And 
you know, PJ flying into the in the in the locker room with the action. That's that that's celebrating with the action. That's what you do with the action when you win it, right? I think where people kind of took a little offense to it, Wisconsin at least, at least uh, Chris Orr, I should say. I'm not going to say yes. Yeah, so it all begins uh, and ends uh, yeah. with Chris Orr, yeah, yeah, doesn't it? It does. There were well, there were reports, not even reports. There were articles written about it um, about how the axe went on a tour of Minnesota, but uh, that and okay, great, that's fine. It's first time in 15 years that you have it. Do what you want with it in that respect. But I think that there was a little bit of issues with the idea that it was being rented out and like taken to weddings and like all that, like all that stuff that just doesn't feel at least to Chris Orr right. And he finds motivation in any little thing, but he grabbed onto that and had a strong take on it in the postgame locker room. And I'll play that right now so you can hear that in case you missed it, if you did. Well, we just felt like they disrespected the ex um, by renting out the people, um, having it, you know, any and everybody can touch it. You know, it means more than that. You know, people have played this game for a very long time. It, it, it means more than that. It's not a... It's not a just a little commodity or something that you can just rent out for for money or whatever the case is. You're trying to make profit off of it. I feel like that was disrespectful. They didn't honor the players that come came before. They also lied and said only the seniors can touch it. Touch it, no, only the seniors chop. So we felt like it was disrespectful for them to do that. So just a little disrespect back. So that was he's obviously wasn't happy about it. I get where he's coming from, but I also understand that he's just grabbing onto any little thing. Yeah, I thought about this, and I thought PJ said this too before because when there were articles written in the lead up to the game, you you win and you can do what you want with the axe. I honestly don't see that much wrong with. I, I have what an issue. Minnesota I, did. Now Chris's problem was commoditizing it. And, yes, and making money. That would off be of my it. issue with it. And I don't think we have the full facts on. Probably not. Was there money exchanged? But what how did you, that work? How do you rent stuff You would up? think so. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that Chris said was he did not like the fact that he didn't use PJ Flex's na- uh, name, but he said that they lied and said that only seniors could touch the axe because that was something that PJ said after they won yeah. last year, that it wasn't just going to be seniors like it is at Wisconsin. Everybody can touch the axe. Chris didn't like that either, and um, generally the seniors chopped the goalposts, but yeah. you had three juniors in there, Tyler Biadich, um, Jonathan Taylor, Quintez Cephas, and Jake Ferguson was parading around. He's he's a redshirt sophomore, so Chris is fired up about any and everything, but especially in this game, he was as motivated as you'll ever see. He was. We've seen chopping the goalposts, right? That That's what they do. Both teams have done it. Wisconsin uh, ran down there, picked up the axe, chopped the one goal post on the one end, and as expected, you were expecting them to run down to the other end and chop down the the other one. Um, Chris grabbed it, ran, started running down that way, and when he got to the 50, he stopped. And the entire, everyone goes around him, and he starts, uses the axe and starts rowing. And you can hear the entire uh, team, row, row, just like they're saying, chop, 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 row, row, row. And he gives it to Connor Allen. He gives it to Bradrick Shaw. And uh, it was obviously row the boat, you know, PJ's thing. And that was the reason for what he said afterwards. That He said that was the reason why they did that, because of what he felt is disrespect with the axe. said a little disrespect for a little disrespect. I don't have a problem with any of the things that happened, to be honest. Um, no, it's okay. all It's all part of the rivalry. It it's is. all what makes this fun. You know, it you is. can row, you can chop, you can really do whatever you want when you win. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen a team though revel in it as much as Wisconsin did? Not just after the game, but like in the post game media session too. Like 
just the idea of like that in, the entire off season was about it. The picture in the in the you know that was one aspect of it. And I know that it came out for a portion of time this this season and then went back in the picture of them celebrating. I've never seen a Wisconsin team, and it's they haven't had the opportunity to do this in quite some time. But like to have that focus the entire year, the entire uh, winter conditioning, spring ball, summer conditioning, w- fall camp, like that was their their focus the entire time. And so I, I guess I kind of kind of understand how much they reveled in it afterwards. That's why I would say that no, I have not seen a Wisconsin team act that way, celebrate quite in that way, because in the time that I've been covering them, they had always had the axe going into the game. And that was another reason why I thought Wisconsin would win this game. Like you could say it's silly or cliche, no. but th- the whole, as you said, offseason built up toward this. It gave them a newfound sense of motivation, and I just felt like there was this fire and intensity that they finally understood what it was like not to have it. And it's it's a trophy. It's... You know, but that's that's what makes college athletics and college football in particular so special because it means more than the trophy. Right. And and you're hearing players talk about that after the game and even in the in the week leading up to the game. It's not just about the trophy, it's about the programs, you know, it's not just about these two coaches, it's about the fan bases and the states. Um and that's what went into the celebration and that's why I think it was it was so fun. And it was about reestablishing themselves as the team in the West. Northwestern won it last year. Minnesota led the thing for a, a long stretch of this year, you know, whether in first place or tied for first place with Wisconsin until they lost. Like the, a lot of people had forgot about Wisconsin. You think about the preseason poll, it was Nebraska and Iowa. They got the same number of first place votes. Minnesota got a first place vote. Wisconsin got some first place votes too. But I think there had been some people forgetting that Wisconsin has owned this division. This is now four Big Ten West titles in the six years the division has existed. So, until further notice, until Minnesota actually can, I guess, go ahead and, and uh, well, I shouldn't say that. They are co-Big Ten West champs, according to PJ. They're going to celebrate as co-Big Ten West champs. I don't know if they get t-shirts or not for that, but that's <laughs> so ridiculous. But Wisconsin reestablished themselves as the team in the West, and, and I think they were all quite happy about it. I think it's worth pointing out, since we're at the point in the discussion, just how much I think fans should appreciate like this 10-2 and two season and, and really what's happened recently, because... If you think about it, Paul Chris has been the head coach here five seasons now. They've had at least 10 wins four of those seasons. They've had at least 10 wins in eight of the last 11 seasons. And I think anybody before the season, if you would have said, Wisconsin's going to go 10-2, and two, they're going to win the West, and they're going to have a chance to play Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship, you absolutely would have taken it. But, well, the 6-0 because- start is what kind of changed the trajectory and the loss to Illinois. Right. If those two losses are to Michigan and Ohio State, or I should say Ohio State and some other team, not Illinois, that wasn't a 30-point underdog, it might be different. But you're right that you do have to embrace what this is because no one picked 10-2 and before the season. Nobody was picking 10-2 and before the season. No, not no, at all. I know we weren't. No. And the other thing is, um, even if they had beaten Illinois, I mean, they, they might wind up in the same game regardless now you, you could have said well now they've got to, if, if they won that game and they played Ohio State the way they did they could still get into the playoff but let's just say they lose to Ohio State again this week they could still wind up in the Rose Bowl which would have happened you know regardless of that outcome I just my whole point is that 10 and 2 it's a pretty darn good year I think around here sometimes you can just say well they're going to play in a January bowl game they won 10 games it's another season at Wisconsin 
This does not happen most places, unless you are the Ohio States of the world and the very select few. That just doesn't. So right. it's really 10 and 2 is a pr- pretty remarkable accomplishment this season, especially considering what happened last year with the eight win season and the disappointment that transpired. And just the fact that the Axe, remember we talked last week about what's more important the Axe, the Big Ten West? Did you see the trophy last night? I didn't see the trophy at all. I, was it even there? <laughs> I didn't see it. Like, you know, like. I, I think I, th- I think someone's I think it made it to the locker room, but it was not it was not the focus. It just it came along with it. The, the Paul Bunyan's axe was the Big Ten West Trophy this year. Yeah, I suppose fair? I suppose that's fair. All right, um, we'll start with this here in sold or not sold. Wisconsin beating Ohio State would be a bigger surprise than Wisconsin losing to Illinois. Oh, I'm sold on that one. <laughs> and maybe a few weeks ago, I would not have said that because. As you mentioned, Wisconsin was a 30-point favorite against Illinois. But it turned out Illinois was a pretty good college football team this year. They're going to go to a bowl game. They got on a streak after they beat Wisconsin. And maybe you could ask, why were the Badgers 30-point favorites uh, to begin with? Obviously, they had been 6-0. Well, they had been dominating teams. But top 10 this would be, and we haven't yet talked about looking ahead since we've been looking back, to me, the biggest upset in decades given – I, maybe even further back. This is, as I've said, the best Ohio State team that I have seen this decade, and they won a national championship. They are putting 50-plus on everyone, and as Justin Fields, the quarterback, will remind you, they would have put up 50 on Wisconsin if the weather had been better, and tough for me to argue with that. Yeah, that day, I mean, we, I, I think it's worth remembering that it was 10 nothing at the half. It was. Yeah, okay. I thought the defense was excellent in the first half. Yeah, they played well enough in the first half to keep them in the game, and then Last State, I think, scored on four straight possessions to open the, or maybe it was five, four, uh, to, to open the second half. No, it was it was four because it was 38 to seven. They scored on four of their five possessions in the second half. No, 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 no. Excuse me. They came out of the half. Punt got blocked. Uh, Wisconsin bo- blocked the punt, scored the touchdown, so it was 10-7, and then they went and scored four straight touchdowns to salt that game away. But either way, Wisconsin is a 17-point underdog in this game. Going back through Odd Sharks database, which is the only thing that I've that I've ever found where you can go back and look historical odds. Wisconsin has never been a 17-point underdog in the in the last at least 22 seasons. I'm not I don't think the uh, database goes back further than that, but you probably would have to go back to when Wisconsin was not Wisconsin that we've known for the last 25 years or 30 years, well, 25 years, 27 years to to find a game where they have been this big of an underdog simply because it just hasn't happened because they've been a good team. But Ohio State, you're right. They they've, just, they've been unstoppable. They've they've curb stomped absolutely everybody they've come up against. Everybody they've come up against except Ohio, uh, except Penn State. And outside of a three minute stretch where Penn State got a couple of turnovers in uh, in plus territory, that wasn't a game either. Though Penn State will certainly tell you otherwise, and as they battle and try and plead for a berth in the Rose Bowl. But I mean that team. I don't know how you stop it. I don't. And I don't know how you. And, and if you stop it, okay, great. You How are you going to score? How are you going to score against them? Right. And that's the thing. They just they just have better players across the board. I mean, in college athletics, the team that has the better players, not always, but generally, yeah. is going to win the game. And, and I know we talked about this with the last matchup, but they're recruiting four- and five-star guys. They are just on an entirely different level. And ever since Urban Meyer got there, he elevated them even on a higher plane, and Ohio State was already generally the cream of the crop By in, in the Big Ten, but now they are absolutely untouchable. They have the best defensive player in college football with Chase Young, who 
Might wind up as a Heisman finalist, certainly deserving of it. They've got two guys that maybe if they were on a different team and doing what they were doing, they'd be Heisman finalists, but they sort of cancel each other out. You have Justin Fields, who's thrown one pick the entire year, and J.K. Dobbins, who certainly can make the case that he is the best running back in the Big Ten. I mean, obviously, based on what happened in the Wisconsin-Ohio State matchup now, a lot, of people, yeah, a lot of people would say if you put Jonathan Taylor exactly. on that team, it might look a little bit different too. But you've got some of the best players in the sport and so many other guys around them. It's just very difficult to envision Wisconsin winning this game, but I think the Badgers will play better than they did the first time. If it was just one side of the ball, like, like Oklahoma sometimes, right? Oklahoma's got that great offense, but their defense, you could, you could score on it. Like this is, you know, in years past. LSU this year. Got a great offense. Defense not very isn't great by any stretch, uh, especially Dave Miranda's standards that he had he had set. They're not great. Ohio State's got the best of both worlds. They are dominant offense. They're dominant defense. I just and outside of them turning the ball over like they did against Penn State and Wisconsin not turning the ball over like they did that first the first time around. I don't see how it's I, I don't see how it's close. But again, I guess you you never know and and. Do we see that? Do we see the same aggressiveness offensively from Paul Christ? Well, I think it depends on what is this offensive line going to do because that was that was the game where you were like that Ohio mauled. State just absolutely decimated the offensive line. Yep. Jack Cohn did not have the time to throw, so you can honestly, I look at whatever his numbers were in that game, and I just say you can throw him out the window because he didn't even have time to make a five-step drop out of the shotgun right you know chase young is already there to level him and i thought that if i also think that game was a turning point for wisconsin now granted in the next four games they did not play a team anywhere near the level of ohio state who is in the big 10 but they shortened the offensive line rotation joe rudolph basically went to the same five guys he stopped with the guard rotation he went with his seniors and in david mormon and jason erdman and they played better they ran really well the the next three games as a team they ran for over a thousand yards and they've opened up the offense here the last few games. Now, are they going to be able to have that success against Ohio State? Seems unlikely, but I do think they are in a better position to make this a game. I feel like they need to continue with the... Even if you're not handing it off to Kendrick Pryor, not handing it off to Danny Davis, you're not handing it off, I guess, to Jack Dunn, because A.J. Taylor, it would seem that he will, will not be available for the game. I guess we'll see. But just get their eyes going in different places. You can't. You can't just... You have to do what you've done the past couple of games, where you where you do have them having to focus in different places. And if you think back to the 2016 game, and obviously it's a different defense, uh, but there were some pretty darn good players on that Ohio State defense that year too. Uh, the 2016 game where Jazz Peavy just killed them with the jet sweeps early on in that game. It's just getting on the edges and forcing them to actually stay home and and uh, just not, uh, I guess, try and take their aggressiveness and use it to your advantage a little bit. I know that's easier said than done, especially with number two, but. Um, you know, Michigan did a good job against him. He had he had two quarterback hits. That was that was essentially what he did uh, on Saturday, which I don't know if that's a good or bad thing because you expect him to be jacked up. But I know this. Uh, Cole, talking to Cole Van Landen after the game at Ohio State, he said he wanted another chance. Um, he was talking about Ohio State, but uh, he was also talking about Chase Young and just because he didn't think he played great, they have to have a better plan this time around, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, can't, and, it couldn't be worse. And, and I agree with you about being a little more dynamic offensively. Clearly, this is not 
Paul Chris was asked about this Sunday on the Big Ten Coaches Teleconference about what you can do differently, and he said there's a fine line between throwing in some new wrinkles and doing what you've done that has helped you get to this point. But, but if you they, just hand the ball off to Taylor and try to hit an occasional play-action pass, like that's not going to be enough against this Ohio State team. And I think it's exactly as you said. You've got to mix it up. You've got to do every, basically everything they've done the last two weeks. And I will say, in doing that, I think they at least make Ohio State prepare for all of these things. And I'm interested to see what they'll actually use against Ohio State. They're going to have to throw some new things at them because what they have done does not work against Ohio State. Why has Jonathan Taylor's two of his worst games of his college career rushing been against Ohio State? Well, it's because Ohio State's pretty darn good. They are really good. So you can't just say we're going to give the ball to Taylor and hope that we win the game. No. Well, what they're going to need to do is how they stayed in the game two years ago, and that is get some turnovers on defense and uh, you know don't turn the ball over yourself. I'm thinking back to the first drive of that 2017 game, and they moved right down the field, Wisconsin did, and then Alex throws up a, a essentially what was a jump ball to, to Fumagalli in the corner of the end zone, and it snuffed out that game. I mean, that that should have been at least three, if not seven, uh, the way that they were moving the ball. So it also goes back to kind of what we talked about last week, where I kind of wasn't I wasn't joking. I was I was being serious when saying that this week, that week, is on Jim Leonard to figure it out. How do you how do you figure out how to stop Minnesota's passing game? How do you stop you know those weapons that they have on the outside? This is another week, and I guarantee you, with that guy's competitive spirit, he's probably been like Michael Dieter with the Minnesota game. Probably been thinking about the Ohio State game quite a bit. Uh, since it happened that night. And I don't know if he's got the horses to get it done, but it's going to be a, a big week for him and the defensive coaching staff. Heck, the coaching staff in general, big week for them. Time to get into some of your Twitter questions. We'll start with uh, Jake. He asks, why did it take until today, Saturday, for Paul Chris' offensive ingenuity we know he has to show up? Once they worked away from Taylor and found unique ways to spread the ball around, every avenue opened up and they could almost do whatever they pleased. I loved it and wish we saw more of it. Well, we did see some of it against Purdue, so I think they've been slowly but surely opening some things up, and I think some of it might come down to trust in the plan and the ability to execute because the offensive line, particularly through the first eight games or so, was not, I think, the lines we've been accustomed to seeing. I think that can impact some things, but you're right. We, they've got, we've been saying all year, that if, okay, if this is the best wide receiver group that they've had or it's in the conversation – and you've got the best running back in college football, why can't you do some of these things? And we're starting to see it, and they're certainly going to need more of it against Ohio State. As you'd imagine, a lot of the questions are about the offensive play calling and where the heck it was. Um, uh, Wisco Inferno asks, uh, we need the inside story and what changed in play calling today. Why the last game of the year? Is Rudy calling plays now? I'm going to go with no on that, but go ahead. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Again, we first of all, trying to get anything – out of Paul Christ when it comes to uh, game planning and that type of stuff. Like you could ask that question and he'll just say, I think it was more the execution. Cause they, I think they asked him about it after the game. Like all, all these, uh, not, not in the press conference, but on the field afterwards, TV asked him and, and he's like, cause they were at oh, this amazing play calling. And cause ah, I think it was a lot about the execution, which probably is. Cause it's not like the first time they've called screens, right? It, they just called plays at the right time and they worked. I don't think it was necessarily a ton of different plays than that we had seen at other points in the year, though I will say the tight end screen was one that we had not seen. But they've run screen passes, screen passes to Garrett Groshek before. Teams have sniffed him out. You know, in Minnesota, they schemed, they schemed Minnesota up really, really well. They outcoached them 
significantly. That hasn't always been the case this year. I think that's also fair to say. But in terms of inside story of how it happened, we will not nah. know. Yeah. You and I asked Jack Cohn last year, right, about who who calls the plays. We did. And he said, right, I, I believe he said it was Chris, yeah. but Rudy was involved in all in you know all the meetings, and when he would meet well, on the sideline, he'd hear from Bud Meyer. It was kind of like a all three of them would discuss it, things. It was, but I think we asked because I asked about where was Rudy on during the week, like where where did he spend time? Where does he spend, are you is he in every meeting with you? And he said no. Like Chris was in with the quarterbacks and and that type of stuff. Rudy was more offensive line run game that type of thing. Again, I think it is a collaborative effort between Chris, Rudy, and John Budmeyer as well. I think he plays a role in it too. But again, ask Jack, who calls in the play? Who, is, who are you guys getting the play from? Paul Christ. So every time the uh, color analyst says, great play call by Joe Rudolph, okay, that's fine. But it's our understanding that's not the case. Right? That would be my understanding, Yes. <laughs> Adam asks, should I let the opened-up offensive playbook allow my heart to invest in the Big Ten title game? Why not? Go big or go home. They made the game. Yeah. You can be invested but still be um, cautiously optimistic or guarded or whatever you want to say. I I don't think there's – I would be hard-pressed to find anyone outside Wisconsin's locker room that would openly pick the Badgers unless you're a fan and you're blinded by your loyalty to Wisconsin. They opened as an 18-point underdog. They opened as, what was 18? It was opened at 18, quickly moved to about 16, 16 and a half. So maybe people are coming around. Either way, I went, I went and looked for 16 and they still haven't been an underdog in the last 22 seasons for that much. So whatever it's going to end up being, I guess if it gets down to 14, I think that's what they were earlier this year. So, um, you know, we'll see. But Pat asks, thoughts on the play by the secondary? Seemed like they kept Minnesota in check, but at the same time, Minnesota was always getting 12 yards for a first down. I don't know if they were always getting 12 yards for a fresh turn. There were some big plays, but that's a big play offense. They got yeah. two great wide receivers. and They finished with 76 yards on the ground, and so they were forced into yeah, passing. Right, and there were only a couple big hitters from the running backs. Ibrahim had a 36-yard gain. Rodney Smith had a 23-yard gain. But, but collectively, their top three running backs averaged something like four yards a carry. And just threw the ball 37 times to get 296. Right. Yeah, that's the thing. You look at it and you say, oh, 296 yards, but how did he get those yards in the course of the game? And I think especially in the second quarter, almost had close to none. I don't know if it was 20 yards or something like that, but they made a ton of plays, and they made them at, at critical times. One of those touchdowns came with the game totally out of reach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the secondary, that may have been, and I'm not going to say it wasn't aided by the weather, probably was, but that was probably their best game against a big time, you know, against a Big Ten team this year. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Michigan was up there too, but the way that Minnesota was rolling on offense coming into this game, I think it was. And it cannot be understated how much of the pass rush helps that second, helped the secondary too. Oh, they, 100%. Five sacks, but they got after him a lot more than that. And he got drilled. He was limping at one point. Zach Ballin got him low at one point. So we don't talk very much about the defensive line, but that was Garrett Rand's best game of his oh. career. He had seven tackles. Uh, he. Got a sack force fumble that Tyler Johnson fell on that they wound up scoring on. And Isaiah Loudermilk had four tackles. I yeah. mean, that, it really shows the difference of having capable players on the defensive line, but you got it from every level. You mentioned Zach Bond, Chris Orr, those guys combined for four tackles for loss. And now that Zach's gotten over the hump there, this is only the second duo 
ever at Wisconsin to have each have 10 sacks in the same season. And we already mentioned the secondary. So total team effort, total defensive effort, but kudos, especially up front, because they were pressuring Tanner Morgan all day. Without looking at your notes, can you tell me who the other duo was? Yes, it was Tarek Sala and Brian Jurowitz. Uh, so it doesn't happen very often because that was way back in the mid-90s. Either way, it was. No, and Tark's, I, Tark is still the all-time leading sack is the all-time leading sack leader. Tom Burke had 22 sacks in a year. He did, but Tark's Hall is the all-time leader in career sacks. But Tom Burke did have an amazing 1998 where he had 22 sacks. He was fantastic that year. He was, a, he was an interesting fella. Um, yes. Moving on, Cole asks, wouldn't it be ridiculous that this team that this Wisconsin team would miss the Rose Bowl. How can Wisconsin possibly end up ranked lower than Penn State? Well, I'm glad this topic has come up because I feel like it's been discussed for several weeks now. How's it possible? I think it depends entirely on how much Wisconsin loses by if we're going under the assumption that Wisconsin does not win, um, which I think a lot of us believe, at least at this stage. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the college football playoff committee. You're going to have a scenario where Penn State would have two losses. Those two losses would be to Ohio State, best team in college football in Minnesota, which would still be a top 15 team with two losses. That Wisconsin I under- beat. I understand that Wisconsin beat Minnesota. My, Penn my State argument, didn't beat Illinois. Well, my argument would be don't lose to Illinois. If, common, if ultimately, common opponents. If Wisconsin ultimately doesn't make the Rose Bowl and yeah. loses three games, I don't think they have any. gets blown out by Ohio State, I don't. I honestly, I don't think Wisconsin has a leg to stand on, even though some people probably think they should be, because automatically you win the Big Ten West. That means you're the second best team. Don't lose to Illinois, man. You lose three games, then then you're opening the door to Penn State getting in as a two loss team. Yeah, Zach asked Jackie Heisman has his faults, but how many QBs would you take over him in the Big Ten right now? I've actually been asked this question several times, um, and I don't know why people wanted to just name say eight other quarterbacks they would take ahead of Jack. That's not how it works. So, you know, you got the guy that you got. There's not a lot of them based on his consistency. Do we have, do we have to go through all of them? I, I mean, think Justin, Justin Fields. Fields, hands down. Yeah. Justin Fields would probably be up there. The way Shea Patterson had the plane prior to this week, he's been, he's been quite good. Um, I'm not saying it would take more. I'm just, I'm naming names here. People would have said Tanner Morgan before the, the game against Wisconsin, but I, I still think he's. A, I think I still think he's really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. He's got twenty-seven touchdowns and six interceptions now, or I should say twenty-eight um, touchdowns and six picks. I mean, he's been he's been great. They've thrown the ball over the place. Now he's got two of the best receivers in the country. But but I think it's worth. I think it's more honestly. I think it's worth exploring Jack through the prism of other Wisconsin quarterbacks as opposed to which guy would you trade him for in the Big Ten? Because it's easier, I think, to to do it that way. He's got 17 touchdown passes right now and only four interceptions. That's a four-to-one touchdown-interception ratio. I think he's something like tied for seventh in single-season touchdown passes. And you look at some of these guys recently. Seventh? Is, it, it, is, at, that, at, is that supposed to stand out? Or? I'm just – well, he's got a couple games left. It's just – the ones recently who have thrown more touchdown passes than him, like Joel Stavi, he threw 13 interceptions that year. He had 22 touchdowns. Alex had 25 touchdowns. He threw 15 interceptions. So I think... Are we tossing in his turnovers, his other his turnovers fumbles? as well? Because I think that's probably worthwhile to do. I mean, we yeah. sit there and say he's only got three interceptions. He's also got four lost fumbles, and he's fumbled he does. 10 times. He does. But I think... That's a part of it. It is. I, I've, he's been really, really good, and I... I 
I just don't think at the beginning of the season anybody would have said, looked at these numbers and said, this is subpar, this is not what we need out of a quarterback at Wisconsin. He's sure. been really, really good. He's been, as you said last week, he's been the quarterback that they needed, right? Absolutely. You've continued to say that pretty much all year. Well, um, And I appreciate that, and I get that, and I understand that. I don't know how you can make an argument. Try. The, the argument that people would make which doesn't make sense to me. It always comes back to Graham Mertz, eh. right? I think it's I, I think it's seeing plays that you think you think Jack can make and well, he's not making them. The question would be who else would you put in if you didn't have Jack in? But the people are saying no one can question Jack because of his numbers, because of the 16 touch was it you said what was Seven, it? 17 touchdowns, four picks, I think. 72% somewhere around their completion percentage. So, I'm I can't challenge that because his his raw numbers say I can't challenge that. Like that's that to me no. is that to me is insane. Like I should be able to sit here and say Jack has been good, but I think he could be better. I think he has missed some plays that potentially a different quarterback could make. Yeah, but see, that's not a fair argument in my mind. Potentially because, could make. Potentially, it's but, not saying yes. he could make them. Potentially could make them, and that's that why it leaves it open. Goes both ways because you're not factoring in the mistakes that other quarterback would make that Jack didn't make, and I, that's why I think it. When people have tried to make this argument, especially this season, about they should be playing, and it's, again, always goes back to Graham because of the star rating and everything that he did before. They should be playing him because he's the best running back that they'll ever have. This is the best wide receiver duo or foursome that they'll ever have. He needs to get that experience. Well, he wasn't the best quarterback out of fall camp, and he wouldn't be able to have a redshirt year, and there are a lot of factors that go into this, and so... That's why I think, for a number of reasons, I think that argument is silly. That okay, Which is, there are some throws that Jack doesn't make, but you're not taking into the account that a true freshman quarterback might make mistakes. You're totally right. You're totally right. And Jack has been the exact quarterback they needed. He's been fantastic. I think he should be the starting quarterback. But I also think it's somewhat ridiculous to sit there and tell me that he's got the sixth most, seventh most touchdowns in Wisconsin football history, and that's something great. Like, why should I have to sit there and say, well, yeah, shoot, man, you're right. I got. <laughs> Can't be better than that. Ah, you think you're twisting my words a I'm little not. bit because I'm not saying he can't be better than what he is. I'm saying the question of asking which other Big Ten quarterback should play ahead of him doesn't really make as much sense as viewing him through the lens of how other Wisconsin quarterbacks have fared and whatever numbers that he has now are not his final numbers, but I think they're better than a lot of other quarterbacks that have come through here where is would what you, I'm saying. Where would you rank Jack among the Wisconsin quarterbacks then? For like, let's, an, let's for, like, say, for like an all-time single season? Because, I mean, he's only been a starter for a year. He's been a starter for a year and a half. Well, he started four games last year. So he started... Close to a year and a half. 16 games now. That's pretty... That's, that's a that's, year and That's more than quarter. Bart Houston ever started? Yeah. yeah. A few less than Alex started. A lot fewer than Joel started. I would put him ahead of Joel and Alex in terms of his ability to make plays and limit mistakes. Yeah, you can factor in the the lost fumbles that he has had but i just they those guys threw a lot of interceptions and you know outside of alex's and and outside of alex's junior year or sophomore year and joel's sophomore year those seasons were like the same number of picks as they were touchdown passes yeah and i think there's a lot to be said for that it's not just about raw numbers and i'm not saying it's only about raw numbers but i'm 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 saying that are you gonna make an Are you gonna make an argument that since, how about uh, this? I'm, I'm since say, uh, Russell Wilson has there been a quarterback 
that you would take ahead of Jack that has actually played here? Um, Tanner McAvoy. No, I'm Don't tell me that Some, with a straight face. Someone, someone tried to tell me on Twitter that this offense would be better with Tanner McAvoy as the quarterback. People have short memories. This, that's what I said. I said, that's untrue. Uh, see 2014 LSU as, as evidence. And they're like, that's so unfair. Just picking one game. I said, all right, how about you go with this? They moved him over to safety and wide receiver, meaning he was not better than Joel Stavi, Bart Houston, Alex Hornibrook, or Jack Cohn for that matter. Nothing back. But as I said before, Jack Cohn is the best quarterback for this team right now. But I don't think that there's anything you can sit here and say that he's been the fantastic, the, the greatest thing that Wisconsin's ever seen, and that he can be that he's unquestioned, and that he is automatically your guy next year. I, I personally don't I, like. I don't think that. Those are a lot of different points that you're bringing up, to be honest, because I think you can say that he's got room for growth, and that yeah, they're. There's always have been better players, but I think you could also say that he would be your leading candidate to be the starter next year based on what of he's done. Of course he year. would be the leading candidate, Jesse. All I'm saying is you would not sit here. I just don't think you point. Now, this is a stupid conversation right now. We should have this conversation in, le- in March, in, in, bowl, in bowl prep. But like, you know, it, just not before a Big Ten championship game. All I'm saying is Jack Cohn's the best quarterback for this team right now. There's no doubt in my mind about that whatsoever. I, did, I don't necessarily think that means that guarantees him the being the best quarterback for this team in 2020. But I think Jack has been very good for this team. I just don't think that it's left him unquestionable. I, I'll agree with your sentiment. I think we came to this conclusion in a roundabout way. Paul asked, what's your guess on a bowl game if it's not the Rose Bowl? Gator Bowl. Oh, Citrus Bowl. Citrus Bowl? Yeah. I think it's probably Citrus Bowl for sure. If not... I would think so, yeah. That or the you Outback. You can't drop below... That or the Outback Bowl, but they haven't been in the Citrus Bowl since 2013. They right. were at the Outback Bowl in 2014. So it wasn't even the Citrus Bowl back then. It was the Capital One Bowl. It was. Get your sponsorships. The shadiest, the shadiest of, uh, of uh, stadium locations, too. Do you remember uh, the drive into? So they had a media bus that took you in there, and like it was just all a bunch of boarded up houses. I believe there was a dead person found at one point uh, outside in that little river that, or whatever it was around the stadium. I think it's improved. I think they redid the stadium the year after Wisconsin played there. But Shadiest sight of a bowl has to be Outback Bowl because it's in Tampa. I stayed at a hotel. There were three strip clubs across the street. I I didn't stay at... You stayed at... Should have stayed at a better hotel. Who were you working for at that point? I will decline to not name the outlet, (laughs) but... They were not not putting you up in nice places. They were not. Uh, I I remember feeling bad for you back then. I don't feel bad for you anymore. You get to stay at the five-star places now. Big Big athletic budget. Coming up in the world. All right, so... Big Ten Championship game, what's the score? Well, I haven't thought uh, at all about this, but Ohio State's going to win, and they're going to win by three touchdowns. So they cover it, for sure? Probably. No matter, no matter what it is. I think it'll be closer. 16 or 17? <laughs> so it'll be closer. Maybe it's two touchdowns. So it's closer, closer than 38 to I seven. think it's going to be closer than it was the first time. I, I have little doubt about that for some reason, even though Ohio State would have put up 50 if it hadn't rained. It's only 31. So, I mean, it's, they don't have to... I only have to beat it by. I only have to don't get beat by thirty this time for you to be right. I think they'll be in it in the second half, which they were at Ohio State, and I think they're a better team. And certainly, you can say both teams are better now. But to me, especially, uh, well, really on both sides, I think Wisconsin's shown some market improvement here. The one guy that they have not been able, like, not been able to stop whatsoever in the twice that they've played him, J.K. Dobbins. Dobbins. He is he has been dominant both times that they've played him, and um, if they're going to win that game. 
he has to be held in check. You mentioned Garrett Wren. Didn't play in the first game. So uh, we'll see if uh, adding him back in helps at all in stopping the run and stopping Justin Fields and stopping the bevy of playmakers they have. Jesse, thank you. Thanks, Zach. You've been listening to The Camp here on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network.